One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. still remember the day I lost my friend, Mike. We were on a Navy SEAL mission in Wyoming, tracking down a terrorist cell that had a hidden base in the mountains. We were hiking through the snow when we heard a loud explosion. We turned around and saw a huge fireball engulfing our chopper. It had been hit by a rocket launcher. We knew we had to get out of there fast before the enemy found us. We split up into two groups, Mike and I in one and the others in another. We agreed to meet at a rendezvous point where another chopper would pick us up. We ran as fast as we could, dodging bullets and grenades. We reached a cave where we decided to take cover for a while. We checked our radios, but they were jammed. We had no way of contacting the others. We waited for a few minutes, hoping that the coast was clear. Then we heard a roar, a loud, inhuman roar that made our blood run cold. We looked at each other and grabbed our guns. Something was coming. We saw a shadow moving in the darkness. It was big and fast. It leaped out of the cave and landed in front of us. It was a creature unlike anything we had ever seen. It had the body of a bear, but the head of a wolf. It had claws, fangs, and spikes all over its fur. It had red eyes that glowed with malice. It snarled at us and charged. We opened fire, but it seemed to have no effect. The bullets bounced off its skin as if it was wearing armor. It swiped at Mike and knocked him down. It bit his leg and dragged him into the cave. I screamed and followed them. I fired at the creature, but it ignored me. It reached the end of the cave where there was a metal door. It slammed the door shut and locked it. I heard Mike's muffled cries and the creature's growls. I banged on the door and shouted, Mike! Mike! Hang on, buddy! I'm coming for you! I tried to break the door, but it was too strong. I looked around and saw a keypad. It had a code that I didn't know. I tried to guess it, but it was useless. I was running out of time. I gave up and slumped to the floor. I felt tears in my eyes and anger in my heart. I had failed my friend. I had failed my friend. I had failed my country. I don't know how long I stayed there until I heard a helicopter. 
It was our rescue team. They had found me and took me away. They asked me what happened, but I couldn't tell them. I was in shock. I was in denial. I was in grief. They took me to a hospital where they treated my wounds. They told me that the others had made it out alive, but they couldn't find Mike. They said he was missing in action, presumed dead. They said they would keep looking for him, but I knew they wouldn't. I knew he was gone. They gave me a medal and a discharge. They said I was a hero and a survivor. They said I should be proud and move on. They said they were sorry and left me alone. I didn't feel like a hero. I felt like a failure. I didn't want to move on. I wanted to go back. I didn't want their sympathy. I wanted their answers. What was that creature? Where did it come from? Why did it take Mike? What did it do to him? I needed to know. I needed to find out. I needed to avenge him. I spent the next few years searching for clues. I hacked into military databases and scoured the internet. I contacted former SEAL buddies and shady informants. I followed leads and chased rumors. I learned things that I wished I hadn't. I learned that the creature was part of a secret military program called Project Chimera. It was an experiment to create super soldiers by combining human and animal DNA and enhancing them with nanobots. Nanobots that could make them stronger, faster, and more lethal, but also more susceptible to hacking and remote control. I learned that Mike was not the only one who was taken by the creature. There were others who had gone missing in similar circumstances. They were all SEALs who had been on missions in remote areas. They were all captured and turned into chimeras. I learned that the program was run by a rogue general who had a twisted vision of the future. He wanted to create an army of chimeras that he could control with a device called the Master. He wanted to use them to overthrow the government and start a new world order. I learned that he had a base in the same mountain range where I had lost Mike. He had a lab where he performed his experiments. He had a vault where he stored his chimeras. He had a plan to unleash them on the world. I learned that he was about to execute his plan in a few days. He had a target, a small town in Wyoming, where he would test his chimeras. He had a date, New Year's Eve, when he would launch his attack. I learned that I had to stop him. I had to stop him before it's too late. I had to stop him for Mike. I gathered my gear and headed to Wyoming. I contacted some of my old SEAL buddies who agreed to help me. They were loyal and brave. They were the best and the only ones I could trust. We arrived at the town and set up our base. We scouted the area and located the enemy's base. We planned our strategy and prepared our weapons. We waited for the night and prayed for the best. We attacked at midnight when the fireworks started. We used the noise and the chaos to our advantage. We infiltrated the base and fought our way through. We reached the lab and planted the explosives. We reached the vault and opened the door. We saw them, the chimeras. There were dozens of them in cages. They were all different, but all the same. They were all monsters, but all human. They were all enemies, but all friends. We saw Mike. He was in a cage in the corner. He was different from the others. He was bigger and stronger. He was the alpha and the leader. He was the first and the last. He had changed beyond recognition. He looked like half Robocop, half human, with weird brain implants in his head. He snarled at us and broke his cage. He freed the other creatures and led them to us. They attacked us and showed no mercy. We fought back and gave it our all. We fired at them and tried to hit their weak spots. We aimed for the small electric circuit near their heads where their brain implants were. We knew it was the only way to kill them. We killed some of them, but not all of them. They were too many and too fast. In the end, we cleansed the base, but their leader escaped. We called for a backup, and Chopper finally arrived. It led us to safety. While on IVAC, some government official threatened us if we tell what happened to anyone.
So I live in West Virginia, and I was walking to a neighbor's house, and as I was walking, I look up at the mountains which are everywhere around her. And one of the mountains I focused on, I seen a white orb-looking thing. It was probably 100 feet above the ground. It was probably the size of an average garbage bag. I watched it float through the air for a good minute, and I couldn't figure out what it was. Also, there was no wind at the time. All right, so just for context, me, my sister, and my mom were coming back from Indio, California from a stay at a hotel because it's pretty barren out there and it's creepy off in the hotel because it's so quiet. Adding to that, we just didn't want her to be alone at the hotel because things happen. So yesterday night on Thursday, we drove back home. It was like an hour and 40 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. We get home, bring our small amount of luggage in, say, out of my dad and brother, relax and just prepare for bed. So skipped maybe an hour or two, it was probably 12, 30 a.m. or 1 a.m.E. Me, my brother, and my sister all share one room and we're already in bed. We're just on our phones doing our own phone. We have this little fan that doesn't make much noise and we had opened the window for fresh air. After maybe ten minutes or so, my brother says, I'm going to go to the bathroom. I'll be back. He gets up and leaves to do whatever he needs to do. Now it's just me and my sister in the room, and two minutes after my brother leaves, we hear this constant clinking sound. It wasn't inconsistent or anything, but we'd hear a clink of two-second rest, and then another clink for what seemed to be a good ten or fifteen-minute time span. So meanwhile, all this me and my sister wonder what it is. So she tells me to slowly close the window. I do that and we could still hear the clinking. And meanwhile, all of this me and my sister feel a sense of unease and heavy-heartedness. My brother comes back, I tell him. And he turns off the fan and we just sit in bed quietly, listening while he looks out the shutters. He asks me if we lock the door and I said I'm not sure, so he goes downstairs Checks comes back up and tells me to make sure to lock the top lock. We're sitting here listening, and he looks out the window and claims something moved outside. Now keep in mind, we leave maybe two or three minutes away from the San Gabriel Mountains, so it could have just been a coyote or some kind of animal walking around, because coyotes and other animals do often come down from the mountains for whatever reason. We fall asleep, and the following morning my brother tells me that he could hear the clinking sound better, and it sounded louder downstairs as it was down our driveway. Also, this clinking sound sounded like some kind of wood hitting each we don't exactly have any sightings. We just heard something at night that seemed to make us uneasy. Anyone know what this could be? I've been threatened by law enforcement and political leaders in our area for my continued mention of the hairy people. We own a small plot of land in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, Calhoun County, West Virginia. We've got over 60 acres. It's been in my family for generations. I have a story to tell you about my brother and his friend that happened just three years ago. My brother didn't believe me about not crossing into the hairy people's valley. He is ex- military. They decided to hunt and camp right on the line where we don't cross. They camp too close to these monsters. Well, they found out the hard way that these beasts mean business. They woke up at three in the morning hearing their two large pit bull dogs being ripped to pieces. They came home crying for all of us to go with them and wipe out the whole family of these hairy beings. I explained to him that we've seen at least 30 of them going into the caves where they live. I know if we started a war with these hairy people, we will lose. They can hide in these miles of caves and come out and come after whoever they want when they want. You will receive no help from the government or the cops. It's just an unwritten law for some reason. I don't know why, but I know it's true. Please share my story. People need to know that they are not only fighting these monsters, but for some reason we are fighting the very people who are supposed to keep us safe. I'm sure I'll be catching hell from our local law enforcement, 
but I'm beyond giving a damn. I'm ready to speak up and start talking about these dangerous, hairy people. This occurred about 20 years ago when I was living in Juneau, Alaska. I was going through a really bad divorce. There was a lot of violence in the marriage and stuff, and the doctor had given me some medication to help me sleep. Now I was lying in bed on my stomach when all of a sudden I felt a very heavy pressure sit on the side of the bed right next to me. I tried to get up. Well, I was concerned that it was my soon to be ex-husband had gotten into the house and was sitting next to me. I was trying to turn around to see, but I couldn't. Then all of a sudden I heard a woman laugh. Like a woman who was a really heavy smoker and she continued laughing very gravelly sounding, or that's what I call it. I tried to sit up again, and it was like she flung herself back on top of me. She was just laughing and laughing. So I reached my arm around, and I grabbed the hair on the head, and I pulled it, and the head literally popped off. It hung by the hair, and I looked at it. It was a very wrinkled old face. I fainted. I just totally blacked out for a short time, but I soon came back to consciousness. My dog was whimpering and sniffing at me. I knew then that I wasn't imagining it. I noticed that there was a clump of hair in my hand. The head had disappeared. I wanted to throw them away, you know, throw them out. But then I thought, I'm going to put them on the nightstand, and so I did. I don't know why I did so. I sat up in bed for a long time. Finally, the dog calmed down and fell asleep, so I went back to sleep. It was weird because I felt so calm and relaxed. I woke up the next morning and I remembered what had happened and I looked over to the dresser where I had put the hair. They were gone, but I was so very terrified. I know what happened, but feared that the old hag would return. All these years later, the old hag never came back. I can tell you the exact year and month this happened. It was in 1979 in April that my own battalion received orders to ship out for the USMC Recruit Depot in San Diego, California. I was in weapons company of the 2nd Battalion, 9th Marine at Camp Lejeune in Jacksonville, North Carolina. After my basic training in Paris Island, South Carolina, and infantry training at Camp Geiger, I had become a rifleman assigned to the 3rd Platoon of the Lima Company. When we left for San Diego, it took a day and a half by train to get there, most of us having never been outside California's borders before, so this was an adventure, once or. Arriving in California at MCRD, I had my first taste of real fighting from some Marine Corps drill instructors. Once I made it through the MCRD hell, I shipped out to Camp Pendleton for further training before being assigned a unit. That is when I met Mr. Bill. What is strange about this story is my past experience with large flying creatures had me slightly prepared for what was coming next. I have never ever read or seen any type of large flying reptilian creature in any science fiction movie or story, but I have read about and seen a pterodactyl one time before. This was during my high school years when I went on a field trip with a bunch of classmates to the local museum, and in the huge atrium there was a very old mounted wingless pterodactyl on display. I think it had been there for at least 20 years maybe more before I saw it. The thing was sitting upright on its tail, wings spread out to the sides of its body like some type of prehistoric leathery aircraft. It looked like something off of a low-budget science fiction film set or prop. It really gave me the heebie-jeebies because here was this monster that lived and died during prehistoric times. It was scary just looking at it. So, of all that, it made my first experience with Mr. Bill's little baby pterodactyl less disturbing to me than it might have been to somebody else who had never seen something like that before. All Marines in my battalion had been seeing these things, too. I know because they resembled somewhat of the pterodactyl that I saw with Mr. Bill. Sometimes you'd see them flying around during dusk, off in the far distance.
Other times they'd be higher up towards the mountains, but they were unmistakable to see. But more on that in a minute. Back to my story about the Marine Corps Recruit Depot. It was around the first week of May when myself and a bunch of fellow Marines were on the parade ground, more or less waiting for something or other. We were all lined up at attention, not moving much at all except for some shifting, and just then I happened to glance in the direction of a very distant mountain about a mile or two away. And there in the air high above something caught my attention. I figured it was a bird, but it was so large. But when it made a big, lazy U-turn and came back in our direction, I could not believe what my eyes had seen. The thing was huge, a large, winged reptile. But you could see that it looked nothing like a bird due to its size alone. The wingspan was three times the normal size of a condor. I looked around to see if anybody else saw what I was seeing, but everybody's eyes were straight down in the position of attention, so they could not have been looking anywhere else except for a head towards the drill instructor up on his little platform. It was then that I figured out the only reason why the die had not said anything about the giant flying thing in the sky was that he probably saw it too. I just happened to look up in its direction and needed to come back around, headed into our general direction again, coming from behind a very tall barracks building. It came closer until it passed overhead, right above where we were all standing at attention on the parade grounds. I could see it all very clearly. It was a huge creature with bat-like wings and a long, skinny tail. The whole encounter could not have lasted for more than a few seconds, but it flew off towards the mountains again. I'll never forget the direction and the general outline of what I had seen and how it looked nothing like any type of bird at all that I've ever seen in my life. This was the very first time all of us saw one. Even the locals and natives there recognized them and even talk about them. If there's ever a place that Jurassic Park exists, it's there in Papua, New Guinea. I must be going crazy. I can see a town that doesn't exist. My name is Samuel Baker. I'm a Yellowstone National Park Ranger, and I need some advice. I've spent my entire career fighting wildfires for the National Park Service, and after two decades in the field, I thought I'd seen everything. Then, about four hours ago, an entire town just appeared in the middle of Yellowstone National Park, and the other ranger and I are the only ones who've been in it. We're not alone, however, as you might expect from something appearing out of nowhere inside one of America's most famous parks. The town is home to many people, some of whom have been there for years. They all seem perfectly normal, but they aren't aware that they live inside a national park. My partner Thomas was the first to notice the town. He'd driven into the valley a few hours before dawn one morning and saw a brand new sign on the road. Welcome to Hungry Horse, it read. When he drove past the next bend in the road, he saw the motel. That's when he turned around to come and get me. The two of us had driven up the valley together in our trusty old Chevy Blazer and taken the long way around because we hadn't wanted to pass through the town until we were sure what it was. We parked at the base of the mountain and hiked up. We walked across the railroad tracks and passed a small gas station with a lone oil drum full of diesel fuel and another filled with water. The street was lined with old cars, some of which looked like they'd been there for a while, others which had probably just arrived that morning. Hungry Horse wasn't a ghost town or even abandoned. It was thriving. Thomas and I entered the town cautiously because, despite appearances, this place could be dangerous. While we didn't run into any trouble, we didn't notice that everyone seemed indifferent to the fact they just appeared out of nowhere. Most of them ignored us completely, although a few gave us strange looks. Some of these people looked familiar, I said, looking over at Thomas. He nodded. I know what you mean, Sam. I recognized a couple people in the diner, too. It's weird. It's weird. Those words echoed in my head as I watched a man carrying a bucket walk down the sidewalk. It's weird, I repeated silently to myself. 
My eyes followed his movements. The man carried himself with confidence and purpose, but he never looked up at where he was walking. Instead, he stared straight ahead and continued forward without looking back once. He disappeared around the corner of a building, and I noticed another person staring directly at me. He was tall and thin, wearing a black hiking jacket. His face was pale, and he was bald. He was standing in the doorway of a small coffee shop. He reminded me of the missing hiker we had searched for last week. That's when I realized why I recognized some of the people here. They are all people who have vanished from national parks. That's how we found out that almost every single person in Hungry Horse had been reported missing from national parks. We spoke to everyone we could find. Some refused to talk. Others were friendly enough, but none of them knew anything about why they were there. As far as they were concerned, they lived in Hungry Horse, Montana. They weren't sure exactly when they arrived there. A lot of them couldn't remember much before arriving in Hungry Horse. They also told us they'd been here for years. Many of them had been born and raised in the town and believed it was the real deal. They all knew the townsfolk by name and went to school with them. One woman, an older lady named Irene, told us that she had no idea that she'd been reported missing. She worked at the local hardware store and had been living in Hungry Horace for more than 45 years. What about your husband? I asked. Do you have children? Grandchildren? She shook her head. No. I've never married. How do you feel about being here? Do you miss anywhere else? Your family, maybe. Again, she shook her head. Not really. This is my home. As far as she knew, this was the only home she'd ever known. I tried to ask if she missed her family, but she just smiled and told me that her family was right here in Hungry Horse, Montana. We thanked her and left the hardware store, hopping back into our park ranger truck we drove deeper into the town. I really don't like this, Sammy, Thomas said. I've had a feeling of being watched ever since we entered town. I looked over at him. He was staring at a man standing by a large semi-trailer outside the diner. The man was holding a jug of milk. I couldn't help but think of the hiker we'd found dead last week. Sam, are you listening to me? I snapped back to reality and looked at my partner. Thomas had started quivering in fear. Sorry, what did you say? I said, I think we should leave. I don't want to be here anymore. I looked around the town. There were so many people here. So many people who shouldn't be here. All of them were perfectly normal. Some of them even knew each other. How could there be so many people in a town that didn't exist? I agree. Let's go, I said. We drove away from the town and back to the ranger cabin. Thomas was still shaking. I'm going to call this in, he said. This whole thing is bullshit. But we better document it anyway. I mean, how could an entire town full of missing people just appear in the middle of Yellowstone? I nodded. Okay, I'll be in the cabin. I think I need some time to process all this shit. I sat down on the couch and closed my eyes. It all felt unreal. I kept thinking about the hiker we'd found out in the woods last week. He died while out on a hike in the wilderness. He'd been alone and confused. But I just saw him alive and well in a town that doesn't exist. I opened my eyes and looked around. I took in a deep breath and let it out. It smelled like wood smoke and pine. I stood up and started pacing the room. What am I supposed to make of all this? I asked myself. Is this some kind of sick joke? Did the government put a town in Yellowstone for some reason? What if it's not a town? Maybe it's a cover-up for something worse. I thought before zoning out, there was a knock on the door. It startled me out of my daydream. Come in, I yelled. Two men came inside, both dressed in black suits. Are you the one in charge here? One of them asked. I looked at him and nodded. The guy was wearing a badge on his chest and a gun on his hip. He looked like an FBI agent. I'm about to go and talk to them, and I don't know if they'll believe me. What the F do I do? First off, let me clarify some things from the my first post. I was a wildland firefighter up until a year ago when I decided I needed a change of pace. They weren't FBI agents. They said they were from a private company that deals with the otherworldly. 
I sat in front of the two men, waiting for them to start asking questions. So, do you know why I've been assigned to this case? The taller of the two said. You're the only one in the park who knows anything about this. I nodded. Thomas also knows, but I, I think you guys already know that. It's pretty weird. The town you described doesn't exist. Not according to the GPS and satellite data. Yes, it does. I answered, surprised. It's a lie, the second man said. He had short blonde hair and wore glasses. We checked every single point on the map, every house, every business. There is nothing there. Bullshit. You can't tell me you've been everywhere in the park and haven't noticed it, I said angrily. When I first came to the park, I saw the sign for Hungry Horse. I thought it was a joke at first, but then I saw the motel, the gas station, the diner, the hardware store, and I saw the people inside them. The man with the glasses nodded slowly, but we've checked every inch of the surrounding area. We've looked at aerial photos, satellite images. We've even flown over the valley with a helicopter. Well, maybe you should have a look again. Maybe you missed something, I said defiantly. We did. There's nothing there. It's not possible. Do I have to show you where it is myself? I asked. Both men exchanged glances. Then the shorter one nodded. Very well. If you're so sure you've seen something unusual, we'll take you there. Thank you, I said. I got out of my chair and followed the two men out of the cabin. They were in their early fifties, both with short hair and blue eyes. They were talking quietly to each other as I followed them out of the cabin to their unmarked car. Now the man with the glasses said, If you could just lead us to your town. Sure, I replied. We drove deeper into the park. Our vehicle was equipped with a topographical GPS system, which made it easy to navigate through the rugged terrain. After an hour of driving, we came to a hill overlooking a wide valley. We passed the sign for Hungry Horse. Did you see the sign? I yelled. The men just looked at each other. I'm sorry. What? The shorter one asked. There's a sign here. It says Hungry Horse. Right. The man shook his head. I don't see anything. He pulled off the road and stopped right before the sign. He turned off the engine and looked at me. Maybe we should get out and look again, he suggested. I agreed. I got out of the car and ran over to the sign. It's right here, I shouted. He walked up behind me and looked over my shoulder. What the hell is this? It's a sign. It says Hungry Horse, I yelled. He looked at me and glared. I grabbed his arm and pulled him over to where I could see the sign. Can't you read? He pulled away and rolled his eyes. Read what? It says Hungry Horse. I yelled. What the hell are you talking about? He yelled back. I pointed at the sign. Look, the name of the town. The man sighed. There's no sign there. I got angry and was about to yell at the agent when out of the corner of my eye I saw someone walking towards us from the out of the woods in the direction of the town. It was Irene, the older woman from the hardware store. My eyes lit up and I pointed at her. Irene, I yelled excitedly. The agent turned to face the old woman. His eyes widened in surprise and he opened his mouth to say something. But before he could, Irene hit him and sent him flying into a tree. You shouldn't have come back, Ranger. She hissed. With lightning speed, she charged the agent with the glasses. Run, I yelled and jumped into the car. It was too late for the agent. Irene had already snapped his neck. I frantically ran back to the unmarked car and tried to start it. The engine sputtered and failed to turn over. Irene stood directly in front of me, blocking my path back to the cab. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. What the F are you? I yelled. You should have never come here. She said, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. What the hell is going on? I yelled. She snarled and lunged forward. Her teeth had grown sharp and she snapped at me, but I evaded her bite and rammed my fist into her stomach. God damn it! I yelled. I grabbed her shoulders and threw her into the side of the car. She slid across the hood and fell to the ground. I jumped around the car and kicked her once in the ribs. I'm going to kill you, I said. She smiled. I've been dead for years, honey. I was about to punch her again when a hand grabbed my arm and yanked me backwards. I spun around and stared at the person who grabbed my arm. It was Thomas, my partner. He had followed the agents and I. What the hell are you doing? I yelled. Don't be stupid. We have to get back to the cabin. I looked at him and shook my head. No, we can't run from these things. I said flabbergasted. What the hell is wrong with you? He slapped me hard across the face. Shut up. Shut the F up. Just shut up. I rubbed my cheek and looked at Thomas in disbelief. What the hell are you talking about? His eyes were wide open with panic. I heard Irene starting to get up. You have to leave now. Right now, he grabbed me by the collar and pushed me into the driver's seat of the dead agent's car. Get in, he yelled. And drive. What about you? I asked. I can't fight them anymore. You know how many rangers they've taken? He said, just get out of here. We just found out about the town yesterday. How do you know this shit? I yelled. You just found out about the town, he replied. The F does that mean? Just go. I'll keep Irene occupied. Get back to the cabin and read my journal. I don't believe this shit. He nodded. I know. I pulled a 180 and sped back down the road towards the cabin. I saw Thomas jump on Irene in the rearview mirror. He looked bigger than he usually does. He was standing on top of her, pinning her arms to the ground. Fuff you! Irene yelled. Thomas punched her in the face and she went limp. Stay down, bitch! The last thing I saw was Thomas running towards the town. I'm back at the cabin and reading through his journal. There's so much I never knew about him. My cousin and I had just finished eating dinner and playing a round of golf. It was June 21, 2012 in Superior, Wisconsin. We were driving on a two-lane road that leads back into the east side of our city. As we turned right at a corner that led back into the main road, we drove another 100 feet until on the right side of the road, I saw an eight, nine-foot figure that was walking back into the edge of the forest located under a streetlight. I immediately hit the brakes, unsure of what I saw. My cousin, who was in the passenger seat, looked as shocked as I was. I yelled, I think that was an alien. The car came to a stop and my cousin yelled, Go, go, go! I sped up and my eyes were tearing up as I couldn't believe what I had just seen. My cousin said, uh, I thought I was seeing things. I replied, No, I saw it too. We drove to our apartment which was nearby, still shocked and startled. I immediately called some friends. They came and picked me up and drove us back to the spot where I saw the figure. I explained what happened to them, and when we drove back to the location, some brush looked to be parted where something had walked through it. I made the call to the local authorities. The figure stood eight, nine feet tall, and had a tall, rounded, crown, crown-shaped head. The head was as big as a human abdomen. The figure was somewhat muscular-looking. 
It had big eyes, but not stereotypical alien-like, long legs, and it did not seem started whatsoever. The winding river beckoned to me, its gentle current promising a tranquil journey through the heart of nature. Canoeing had always been my solace, a way to escape the demands of the modern world and find peace in the embrace of the wilderness. This particular river trip was one I had undertaken many times before, each venture offering new discoveries and moments of reflection. As I embarked on the familiar route, the rhythm of paddling and the soothing sounds of the water against the canoe's hull became a meditative symphony. The sun's warm rays danced on the water's surface, creating a shimmering path that seemed to lead me deeper into the heart of the woods. The highlight of this journey was the 125-mile portage through the dense forest. It was a challenging stretch that required strength and determination but the sense of accomplishment upon reaching the other side always made it worthwhile. As I shouldered my canoe and began the trek through the woods, I marveled at the towering trees and the earthy scent of the undergrowth. Only a few miles from the town, where a quaint motel and a taxidermy shop were the main places to stay, I relished the feeling of being far removed from the bustle of daily life. The tranquility was almost palpable, a precious commodity in a world that never seemed to stop moving. However, my idyllic journey took an unexpected turn as I trudged along the portage trail. I had become attuned to the sounds of the forest, the rustling of leaves, the distant calls of birds, and the occasional scurrying of small animals. But on this day, something felt different. The air was still, and an eerie silence hung in the atmosphere. It was then that I noticed movement out of the corner of my eye. A group of children emerged from the woods, their presence unsettling against the backdrop of nature. They moved with an uncanny silence, almost as if they were gliding rather than walking. Their sudden appearance caught me off guard, and I watched as they regarded me with curious, almost calculating eyes. The feeling that washed over me was reminiscent of a scene from a thriller, a sensation that one might experience when encountering the unknown in the midst of wilderness. The deliverance vibes were palpable, and a shiver ran down my spine as a strange sense of unease settled in my gut. The children's gazes lingered on me for a moment before they turned and, without a word, retreated back into the woods from which they had come. The sight was so surreal their departure so swift that I felt as though I had stumbled upon a secret realm inhabited by enigmatic beings. As they disappeared into the forest, my heart pounded in my chest and instinct took over. Without second thought, I hurriedly set my canoe down and began making my way back in the direction I had come from. The once familiar path now seemed foreign and foreboding. Each rustle of leaves and distant sound magnified by my heightened senses. My pulse didn't return to its normal rhythm until I was back in my canoe, paddling furiously down the river away from that eerie encounter. The beauty of the surroundings which had previously filled me with a sense of serenity now seemed tainted by an unshakable feeling of unease. It was with a mix of relief and trepidation that I finally reached the town and spotted the familiar motel on the riverbank. The sight of civilization was like a bomb to my frayed nerves, a reminder that I had returned from the unknown and into the realm of the familiar. As I docked my canoe and stepped onto solid ground, I couldn't help but glance back at the woods I had emerged from. The memory of those silent, curious children lingered in my mind a puzzle piece that would forever remain unanswered. And as I walked past the taxidermy shop, I couldn't shake the feeling that I had narrowly escaped a brush with something otherworldly on that seemingly ordinary canoe river trip. Partner and I set off for a weekend camping trip in the Rocky Mountains after work on a Friday. Late start, so we didn't get to the road we were looking to camp off of until late. It was getting dark. We found a cleared area, parked my jeep, and hastily set up our 2.5-person tent 
threw in our sleeping arrangements and dog and hopped in the tent for the night. We were playing a board game sitting cross-legged around 9 p.m. when something swiped at the back of my head through the tent wall. We panicked a bit, used remote start on the car to scare whatever it was off. I tried to convince myself and my partner that it was a falling stick. There was no wind, and we were in a clearing. The next morning we came to discover that we were about ten feet from a half-eaten deer in a mountain lion's pantry. I got pet on the head by a mountain lion. Mind you, I'm well above average height, and this kitty was taller than me sitting down. A shadow appeared right in front of me on the road yesterday. I was riding on my bike back home at 12.30 a.m. It was that night also, a bit foggy, but still clear enough to see what's happening in front of me. I live in Belgium and have to ride through a rural area on a dark, quiet road that leads to a big forest that I also have to go through. It is known in my village that in the forest, many, quote, self-harms have happened mostly by hanging. I was coming back from being with friends, and it was about 1.30 in the morning. Before you get out on that road, you drive on a small stretch of street that is inhabited and completely lit by street lamps. While I was driving on the lit part of the road, a black shadow that looked like a person appeared 20 meters in front of me in the middle of the road. There was nothing around the road that could cause a shadow, so there was no logical response to that shadow. The most punishing thing was that the spot where it was standing was completely illuminated. The phantom hovered 50 centimeter or so in the air and was, I think, tomb high, and looked hard like a person. I drove on toward the Phantom because I had to go that way because it is the shortest way home. And the scum stayed put and I drove in front of it. Then I looked back and it was gone. My mom told me afterwards that a good friend of my family also hanged himself there five years ago. Maybe it was him. I can still see it in front of me when I close my eyes. Tomorrow I'll post a drawing of what it looked like. Out camping. I was off foraging and finding kindling when I got a sense I was being watched. I felt a little off, so I readied my hatchet. I couldn't see what set me off, but I kept it in one hand while I got rest of my kindling. When I got back to camp, I saw my sight all messed up and several big claw marks on the tree I'd hung my food from. The food bag was still hanging there. I figured a bear or mountain lion was digging through my camp. My danger sense was still going, but I didn't have the daylight to get back to my car. I set my fire and kept myself ready for a fight. I prepped some alarm traps with a bit of 550 cord in my tent stakes. I improvised a hammock out of my tent tarp and the shredded remains of my tent. I used every last bit of cordage I had prepping for the night. The makeshift hammock was pretty comfy, and where I positioned it, I got a decent amount of heat from the fire. I think I dozed a few times in the night, but any stick cracker pop woke me up. At some point in the dark, my fire was low, and I heard one of my alarm traps get set off. It sounded like the rope got tangled with an animal because it kept going a bit longer than I expected. My adrenaline kicked in, and I jumped from my hammock in my camp shoes and made a bunch of noise like the Hulk. Hatchet and camp knife in hands, I rushed the edge of my camp on the alarm side, and I heard the cans from my alarm travel away. Whatever it was, their element of surprise was ruined. I didn't sleep the rest of the night and just kept an eye on my fire in the tree line. At dawn, I did a quick recon and salvaged my traps. The one was missing, as I suspected. I only searched a few yards around, but figured it was a lost cause. I packed up and hiked back to my car. The scariest part was not knowing what was out there. Maybe if I would have seen it, uh, I would have been able to rationalize the situation, but that was the last time I camped alone without a rifle. I live in a small town that was founded in the 1850s as a railroad town as it's exactly 100 between Columbus and Pittsburgh and 
At the time, steam engines needed to stop every 100 miles to refill with water. I live on the main street, directly across from the field. The tracks run through just down the street from the old rail depot, now a museum. And my house was built in the 1860s by the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. My dogs have always hated my dining room since I bought the house six years ago. They won't lay out there and never linger in there long while moving through the house. I've never thought anything of it. I always assumed it was because of the linoleum floor. Recently, within the past few months, they've started barking at the walls in the dining room in the evening. Again, I just assumed it was because of the shadows. The paint in there is a high gloss, light hue, because it's a large room with a single light source and always feels dark, so at night the light can cast some pretty epic shadows. Well, the week before last, my mastiff charged into one of the walls while growling, and I finally paid attention to what he was barking at. I went out to the dining room and watched a shadow very clearly move from one end of the wall to the other while my dog was bashing himself off the wall. I decided to just let whatever it was go on about its business because it has never bothered me. Fast forward to today. While I haven't seen the moving shadow again, my dining room fan's light fixture blew ten brand new bulbs last week. Every light I put in it has stopped working within a few hours. Had an electrician here today that looked it over and used a multimeter on it, said it's in perfect condition. I don't think I was supposed to see it, and now it's mad at me. Or maybe it's mad at the dog, and I have no idea what it even is. I just know I have a very dark dining room, and my dogs refuse to enter it at all. Being as my front door leads into my living room and the dining room and then the dining room branches off into the kitchen, the basement, the upstairs steps, and the bathroom. My dogs have been stuck in the living room for a week, and they're not budging, even if I bribe them with treats. I have considered asking it to leave, but as a pagan, I know well enough that some things take any direct communication as an invitation. If my little house ghost isn't just a little house ghost, I'd prefer to not extend an invitation and feed its energy. What is in my house? I work as a field biologist and spend a lot of time outdoors. One summer I was spotlighting for ferrets in a national park, which required me to follow a trail on a GPS and shine a high-powered flashlight around in the middle of the night, looking for any eye shine reflecting back at me. The park is a dark night preserve meaning there are no other artificial lights and it gets seriously dark. Even with the spotlight, a lot of details end up washed out and difficult to determine. I was sweeping an area when I noticed a green eye shine by a boulder. I got excited thinking I'd found a ferret. I radioed to command and slowly began to approach. I thought I was seeing two small eyes close together, but actually I was seeing one single eye, which became apparent when a massive head swung around and focused its other eye on me. Turns out that boulder was actually the body of a large bison, and I was standing less than ten feet from its snout in the middle of the rutting season. I just quietly radioed command and slowly backed away as it stared me down the entire time. I gave them a wide berth going around it, and I think I was lucky that it was either too tired or too unsure of the strange bright light to attack me. My name is Clark Stacy. I was born and raised in the deep Everglades of Florida, a place where many city slickers have deemed uninhabitable but a country boy like me can find solace in the lush greenery and plentiful wildlife. From the birds to the boas, I was a friend of the flora and fauna. The relationship was, on occasion, not mutual. The skeeters and noseums were dreadful. The nearly daily rains were unbearable. There was a man eating clam in our backyard. Okay, maybe not that last one, but I do have some messed up tales from the forest. I'll get it out of the way right now. My parents divorced when I was too young to approach the situation rationally, but old enough to know what it meant. 
In short, I thought it was my fault. That's just about when I started going on adventures through the thick brush and humid swamps. It was the only way I could really take my mind off of home stuff and put it on keeping my ass alive. But enough about me, I know why you came here. Have you ever heard the song Gator Country by Molly Hatchet? It's about Florida. Hell, I've probably seen more individual alligators than I have human beings. One drizzly day, I ventured out about a mile from my backwoods home through the dank forests. I found a clearing about 30 feet in diameter with the prettiest daisies and petunias I'd ever seen. As I stepped into the clearing, the rain subsided and the sheer Florida sun caressed and massaged my waterlogged skin. As I basked in this heavenly feeling, I heard a heavy rustle in the tree line. I went from pure ecstasy to a dead standstill. Just about anything could have made that noise, and half of the things it could have been were capable of killing me. For reasons I can't really explain, I wanted to take that 50-50 chance. It was shortly after the divorce, and I felt myself completely numb and invulnerable to danger. Mere feet away from the source of my curiosity, I heard a soft, gravelly voice. Clark. Terror gripped the very fiber of my being, and I felt every my every muscle tense up. I leapt away from the thick brush just in time, as a full-grown gator lashed out and tried to catch me in his gaping maw. When I say full-grown, I mean at least sixteen feet long and as fat as those folks in line at Walmart. I ran like a man hopefully only has to run once or twice in his life, with his life on the line and adrenaline coursing through his veins. I raced through the overpowering greenery, collecting nasty cuts from the razor-sharp palm fronds. I got home and was interrogated by my mom about why I was near covered in blood and breathing like a maniac. I explained that I saw a gator and split. She said that them's is more afraid of you as you is of them. Yeah, right. Now, after that experience, any rational person would stop going into deep woods alone. But I'm not a normal person, and that experience was far from the scariest. Once, during winter, I was exploring a little closer to home. I discovered a banked creek under a thick canopy. I quickly checked my phone's map to see what body of water it connected to, only to find that it wasn't on the map. That should have been enough to turn me around and send me home. But I was feeling adventurous. I wasn't about to get frazzled by some pathetic, uncharted creek. So I hopped down to the bank and started walking along the sandy slopes. It only took me three minutes of walking to find a large, carved-out cavern. The kind an alligator would sleep in during the colder months. I saw a decent-sized stone in the creek and got the worst idea of my life. I picked up the stone and chucked it into the moist, dark abode. What I heard was not a sound. A gator is capable of making. It sounded more like a silverback gorilla whose genitals were just ripped off with a pair of needle-nose pliers. The sound reverberated in my lungs and shook my body to its core. I bolted along the bank with a pace that could put his own boat to shame. I looked over my shoulder to see whose slumber I had interrupted, and I truly wish I hadn't. I saw a humanoid figure standing at maybe ten feet tall, covered in matted auburn fur. It bellowed once again. I found where I had entered the creek shores and flew home. That was the last time I ever went out into the wilderness. Me and Mom recently moved to the suburbs to the north of the Everglades, and I could not be happier. But sometimes, while laying at night, I feel a strange attraction to the beasts of my true home. I am forever haunted by this experience. It was April 1977. Two other young guys and I were in a juvenile detention center in Bergans, Vermont. It was way out in the country, and we had made plans to escape that day. We asked for passes to walk across campus to the infirmary. Then when we got outside, we ran through the apple fields up along the creek and headed north. At one point, a bull chased us out onto a tree falling in the water. We finally got away and continued running for what seemed like hours. It was a heart 
pounding, drenched with sweat ordeal, going through brush fields in a slightly wooded area. We were very tired and running sloppy when all of a sudden what sounded like a helicopter was overhead. We ran under a tree and a big shadow went over us. We looked up. A giant creature landed on a thick branch. We just saw its back at first. It looked like a person's back, but like a bodybuilder's with rippling muscles and long legs. We were trying to figure out what it was. It was about five to six feet tall. When its head turned completely backward, these huge red, orangish, round eyes that seemed to be glowing were staring right at us. They had a hypnotic effect. We were all frozen in fear as it looked at us like prey, and it seemed to be looking for the weakest one. All of a sudden, the branch broke from the weight of this big creature, but its claws were locked on and those huge wings unfolded. The wind from those wings was very strong, and it carried the branch up over us and dropped it right in front of us. Then it turned its body while hovering above us. I yelled, grabbed a branch, waved it, and made lots of noise. It looked a little bewildered and very quietly turned away and glided off without hardly making a sound. I believe it thought we were injured prey and probably hunted other animals like that. I also believe it was trying to scatter us by dropping the tree limb nearby. It was a huge... My native people's owl legend calls them big hoots. They had horns like horned owls. It was brown with a grayish speckled underbelly, huge claws that could grab a person, and an enormous beak. I think this is what people call a mothman. One of the guys hung himself a few months later. He was really freaked out after the encounter and turned himself into the authorities. His name was Jim. I believe if we were not hiding from the helicopter we thought was overhead, it would have snatched Jim. He was the weakest and lagging behind. It did seem to be concentrating on him when it was staring us down with those big orange-red glowing eyes. I've been telling this story for over 40 years. Most people think I'm crazy when I talk about an owl with a 10-foot wingspan. I'm from Clearfield, Pennsylvania. My friend and I used to go to a local train bridge down from the VFW and hang out at night. It was a peaceful place to go for a short walk. We went down one night and kept having strange vibes about it. We reached the bridge and paused for a moment and then walked halfway out on the bridge. We were there for about ten minutes, talking and laughing, and then a huge rock flew off the hillside and hit the water so hard that it hit the bottom of the river. I heard it hit the other rocks on the bottom. It did not roll off the hill. It was thrown. There was no other noise until it hit the water. Anyway, we both paused and shined our lights to the other side and didn't see anything. So we just got up and left because I wasn't hanging around. We got off the other side heading back to the truck. We then heard a wood. On wood knock, and I'm a pretty big and fearless guy, but my butt got the hell out of there as fast as I could. I still hunt white-tailed deer down there despite what happened. Here's a brief story of an alien interaction with a horse, told to me by my dad when I was a kid. My dad was a former jockey, still into horses, horse breeding, and thoroughbreds. This happened before I was born. Dad was working on a thoroughbred stud farm. They had a champion pregnant mare, so the foal was valuable. The horse was in a paddock by herself, away from other animals like dogs, dingoes, and kangaroos. It was an old bush paddock with a pile of old cars stacked up in a corner and high fencing to prevent animals or people from getting in or out. I believe the stud farm was in a town called Scone, in the Hunter Valley area of New South Wales, Australia. One night, a police officer from the neighboring valley reported some lights in the sky. He followed them as far as he could. The next morning, Dad and another guy went to check on the mare to see if it had gone into foal overnight. They found the mare. She had had to foal, but there was no foal or afterbirth anywhere. There was a large ring burned into the ground, and the paint on the old cars had been burned off on the sides facing the ring. 
Dad also said nothing grew in that ring for a long time. Dad passed away about 13 years ago, so I can't get any more information. My cousins used to tell me stories when I was young about Yui's and Aussie Bigfoot. They told me that Queen Yui used to ride a chopper. I didn't know what they looked like. I pictured black ghosts on bikes. Ghosts like in the Scooby-Doo cartoons. Here's a story or two about a ghost in an old building. The building was going to be a church, but it wasn't finished. A priest shot through with the money. The church was turned into a nightclub. I started as a busboy, then barman, and then basically as the bar manager. I opened up and did all the kegs, alcohol, and money. This club building had a bit of a reputation as having a ghost. People would say they'd see a figure upstairs when they were downstairs and a glimpse into a large mirror behind the DJ booth. One night, I asked a female bussy to work upstairs as we were busy. I went up to see if she needed anything. She didn't notice me standing at the end of the counter, so I flicked a plastic shot glass near her. She took off running back down the stairs. At the end of the nights, we'd have knock-off drinks. Security had kicked everyone out, so the bar staff and security would have a chat and drink. One night, the drinks were at a corner bar downstairs. We had three downstairs. One upstairs when all the glasses and a few bottles were smashed upstairs. Everyone took off. We knew no one was up there. We used to operate another nightclub as well. Not open at the same time, though. That night, I was asked to go to the haunted club to get some alcohol and money. I drove to the club and went in the side door. In total darkness, I had to make my way to the front door, turn off the silent alarm, and turn on a few lights. I then had to go out the back, the, the cage, to get the alcohol I needed, then upstairs to the safe. Once that was all done, I had to turn off the lights, turn on the alarm, and get out. I'd been in there plenty of times by myself during the night and day. That night, something felt different. As I turned the lights off and the alarm on, I walked past the entrance to the toilets. I felt like something was there. I turned and looked. It was pitch dark, but there was a darker spot that seemed to move. It made me move, and I couldn't wait to get out. I stumbled down some stairs and tried to calm myself, thinking I was being stupid. I found myself hurrying again to get out and lock up.